April the 29th, 1975, it's night time, we're in Saigon in Vietnam. And helicopter after helicopter after helicopter takes off from the US embassy roof. And on each helicopter are people being evacuated from the war. People who have been involved within Vietnam. So Americans, obviously, but also other allies who, who had helped in, in the war. Helped by informing over movements in the area by reporting back to the American troops. And, and they had been promised safety. They had been promised immunity. They had been promised a new home. And so the night goes on and wave after wave after wave of helicopters leaves and things start to get a bit worrying. It's worrying because it's becoming increasingly clear that it's going to be tight, it's going to be very tight. During the night, 2,000 South Vietnamese had been airlifted out, but still 420 were left, stranded at the embassy. And the helicopters dried up. Hours later, the North Vietnamese pour into the city and those remaining end up either in camps or in coffins. History tells us it was regarded by some as the greatest betrayal of the war. Why were they left when there were only a few more chopper runs could have got the rest of them out? A nation who had spent billions, a nation presumably as powerful as the US, some say, could they not be trusted to keep promises? Could they unable to keep their promises? But it's different with God. In Egypt, our verses for this morning, he has promised to rescue his people, and he was able to do so. He had promised to rescue them from slavery so they might be free to worship him. And despite doubts and fears and questions, and despite the mighty strength of the Egyptian superpower, he does. Remember the story in Exodus? It's kind of a continuation from Genesis. And if you were here last week in Genesis, you will remember God spoke to Abraham and Sarah and he promised them something quite extraordinary. As Matt was telling the children, you might be well on in years, but you're going to have a family. And it's going to be a special family. It's going to be a family that will will bless the nations. And then we said two things which are important for this morning. We said the first one is that we should expect an expansion in the promises of God. So to get from this one little couple through one child to to bless the nations, things are going to have to grow. They're going to have to mushroom, and they do and they have, and we find ourselves this week in Egypt. The people have been productive. Numbers have grown. The, The writer uses sort of Genesis creation type language of The people in Egypt, they are swarming, he says. But they're in the wrong place. The family have mushroomed. Numbers have risen, but they're they're not in the land that God has promised them. They're stuck in Egypt. They are yoked and enslaved, and they are suffering, and they are crying out to him. Crying out for freedom, crying out for rescue. So we said we should expect things to grow and expand, and they have. Secondly, we said this idea of substitution, this little sort of musical motif that goes through the classical piece, grows and repeats and develops and matures as the pages of the Bible turn. And so last week we saw this substitution of one for one. One animal for one child. This week it's grown. It's one, but it's for a family or families. Remember last week they ascend the hill, Isaac for the ram. 
brought back from the clifftop of despair at the last moment by God providing a substitution that he needed. And this week, it's another one. But it's not one for one, it is one for a group, one for a family. The motif has matured, it's developed, it's blossoming. But why? Why do each family need a substitute? How have they got themselves to this place? Why is a lamb or a goat needed? Well, it's because God is going to come and judge the Egyptians, all of Egypt. In fact, not just the Egyptians, but his people too. He's been judging the Egyptians already, plague after plague after plague after plague. If you remember, it was about a year and a bit ago we looked at Exodus in our morning meetings. And we saw that God would come and he would target another god of Egypt, another aspect of creation that they believed the Egyptians' god ruled over. So plague one, the Nile god, Happy, is is left defeated. Plague two, the goddess Heket, represented by a little frog symbol, done away with. Right through to plague nine, the sun god, Ra, dispatched to darkness. These are revelatory acts. God is showing them who he is, that he is the king. And plague 10, the Passover. Pharaoh would have been considered a god in their society. But he is not the god. One writer said, the plagues are God's megaphone. I am the Lord. Look what happens if you oppose me. And just as the Egyptians had drowned baby boys in the Nile in chapter 1, so here the tables have been turned. Okay, so what's going on? First point from Exodus chapter 12. God says, you need a substitute. Let me read again to us from verse 3 to 11. Take yourself into the story as we read it. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbour, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. You are to take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Don't roast the meat, don't eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs and internal organs. And don't leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. And this is how you are to eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So look at a couple of things. We first notice that it, it is stipulated, that is, and it's fairly obvious, there's no room for creativity here. These aren't suggestions for how you might want to do it. No, God has told you how you're to be rescued. And you must obey and you must do it exactly as he shows you. 
No doubt the firstborn son and the rest of the family will make sure it is done exactly as God has shown them. It's not a popular thing for us to say in our culture where people say, well, to me God is like this and I like to worship him in this way. But for fear of being called a bigot, it seems to me the Bible is very clear again and again and again that we don't have that kind of room for manoeuvring. We don't make God up. We're told what he's like. We don't make up how we worship him because he's told us how to do that. And you get it wrong in the Passover, and there are dire consequences. You get it wrong in life, and finally there will be dire consequences. So so these are clear stipulations, they're not suggestions. Not just a nice idea of what families might like to do once a year. Secondly, it's a substitute involved which is why we're looking at it for this series, it was a lamb's blood or a goat's and it had to just be smeared on the doorposts so that the family inside that house, verse 13, would be rescued, would be passed over. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. The blood said, in this house, there's already been a death. I take it that the door was the the way into the family home. It represented where this community would be consuming the meal. And as we've said, there's no room for imagination. God is very clear about how they're to do it. Notice that it's costly and that it's going to be cooked in a certain way and consumed in a certain way as well. It's costly. Verse 5, it's going to be perfect. Year-old males without defects. This will not be cheap in, in monetary terms for a family that will cost. Interestingly, it seems that they're to keep it as well for, in, into the family for the animal in verse 6. It's not just financially expensive, but there's an emotional expense as well. This costs each family as they obey God. And the cooking, it's very precise. This isn't a question of comparing Delia and Jamie and Nigella. This is God's recipe, verses 8 to 9, bitter herbs bread without yeast, over a fire, internal organs. Well, think in a bit why it's done like that. But God tells them how to cook it and how to consume it. They're not to waste it, verse 4, it's to be the right amount for each household. As if the substitute is to be sufficient for the people it's to represent. It also means it becomes something of a community meal later Jewish historians would say between 10 and 20 people would take the Passover. There aren't folk left out. It's a remembrance and a rejoicing at the heart of the community as God rescues them. But if you don't trust God, if you don't believe him, verse 12, on that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both peoples and animals, And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. God is perfectly just. All sin must be punished. Which means there's no automatic escape for Israel. Doesn't let them off the hook. But there are a couple of questions that we need to deal with. Questions perhaps that you have or that folk might have um, that you speak to. 
The first one, question that people ask is, well, what was their sin here? If this is to show the gods of Egypt who is the boss, who is king, then why are God's people in the same boat as everyone else? Why does he include them in this judgment? It's a good question. I think the best answer comes from later in the Bible. And we get a glimpse or two of just what went on in Egypt. Have a listen to Joshua 24. Uh, the people, they finally, that they've been rescued from Egypt, they've gone through the wilderness, they've reached the land. Joshua 24, verse 14. It reads, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the river Euphrates and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Do you see what their ancestors did? The people whom God is rescuing, what did they do? They served Egyptian gods. They didn't shun the gods of Egypt, they bowed to them. It's more in Ezekiel 20, verse 5 to 7 as well. And God says, I swore with uplifted hand to the descendants of Jacob and revealed myself to them in Egypt. With uplifted hand I said to them, I am the Lord your God. On that day I swore to them that I would bring them out of Egypt into a land I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most beautiful of all lands. And I said to them, each of you, get rid of the vile images you have set your eyes on and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So when they ask the question, why are God's people lumped in with everyone else? Well, it's because they need to know firsthand who the true God is. Because they have worshipped Egyptian gods. The second question that people ask is, why does it matter that much to God? If he is loving and patient and generous and kind, then why does he keep bringing up sin? Why can't he just forget it? If you've been coming to our evening services in Romans, um, you might remember we've said something about this recently. The answer we came up with, we've underestimated how big a deal sin is because we've underestimated how good God is. And it seems to me our problem in life is we just get desensitized to stuff. So you know that flashing light on your dashboard in the car that you worried about at first. And now you just ignore it. You hardly notice it. Or or in all honesty, when the rotten banana turns up in the back of the car and you knew something didn't quite smell right, and that was a month ago, and you'd sort of got used to it. Well, so it seems with sin, we just get desensitized, we forget. It's not such a big deal anymore. We've stopped noticing the warning light in the car. We don't smell the banana. We've lost sight of how good God is, how much he hates sin. He's perfectly holy, clean, just, good. He can't just overlook sin. But it leaves us with a problem, of course. Because we cannot bear the consequences of our sin. And so a substitute must come and bear it for us. And a lamb is not a real substitute. It serves as a picture of what is necessary, of what is to come. What kind of substitute do we need? We need one that's perfect. One that's without defect. 
We need one that is tailored to our need, just enough for each group, identified with by us as we eat it and consume it. And yet, to be frank, on its own, it leaves God open to questions of injustice. Accusations, how can a lamb pay? How is it ever fair for a third party to pay for the sin of someone else? The lamb anticipates Jesus. And so as he walks onto the pages of John's gospel, so John the Baptist says, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Perfect, he is man tailored to meet our needs. A human being pays for human sins by a human death. And yet it's God himself paying. It's not an innocent third party. This is, this is our judge standing in our defence. This is the prosecutor as our advocate, taking the punishment that we deserve. Justice, mercy, meeting. But it's striking back in Exodus 12, if we ask, who is this substitute for? Who who partakes in the Passover? Clearly it's for Israel, it's for the people of God. But potentially, it seems to me, it's for the people of Egypt as well. This is not exclusively for ethnic Israel. So in verse 38, we didn't quite read this far, but just have a glance. Many other people went up with them and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. Many travelled out of Egypt with the Israelites. Many left as they fled. Or a bit further on, next page, verse 48. A foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised and he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat it. The same law applies both to the native born and to the foreigner residing among you. It required a personal identification with the people of God, but you could be a part of that community. So I take it that may be us this morning. Here is someone who, who feels rather on the outside of just looking in on things, looking in on Christian stuff. You know you've not personally identified with him yet. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian or you're, you're not quite sure. But let me urge you as we look at Exodus 12 to trust Jesus. Trust him as your substitute. God is not desensitized to your sin. He can't just overlook it, but he provides himself the lamb to die instead. To trust him Rejoice in him. Follow him. So our first point then is that we need a substitute. The second is that we need to remember. In a sense, this bit in Exodus here in chapter 12, it is utterly unique. There is only one Exodus from Egypt. There is only one tenth plague. There is only one Passover meal. There is only one lamb slain at this point in history for each group. It's a key event. It happens once. Lots hinges on it. It is unique. 
Indeed, it's to be the start of the rest of their lives, 12 verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. This is where it all begins. And yet it's something there to carry on doing. Carry on remembering. Again and again and again. Have a look at verse 14 then. This is a day you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Verse 17, celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. A bit further down, verse 24, obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land, the Lord will give you as he promised. Observe this ceremony, and when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. We're a forgetful people. Often we always look forwards. What's coming next? What's the next big thing? What are my plans? And we forget to look back. And so God orders them to reenact this sacrifice of a lamb, this meal, with all the particular details, and to explain it to subsequent generations. Each generation to reenact, to own it for themselves. Each generation needing its own faith, trust. Each generation to remember. Because sadly, people forget. It's sad, and you can look at church history and you can see the way that that's happened. A couple of examples. The first, you may have heard the story of the the Mennonite Brethren movement. One particular analysis of this Christian group goes like this. It's the first generation believes and proclaims the gospel and thought that there were certain social entailments in light of the gospel. Second generation, assume the gospel and advocate the entailments. Third generation, deny the gospel and all that's left of the entailments. Fourth generation probably asks, well, why are we bothering to do this? So it's all gone. Similar story in 1919, the setting, Cambridge, Trinity Great Court, a, a meeting between Rollo Perry, the student of the, uh, sorry, the secretary of the student Christian movement, and then a couple of men, Norman Grubb and Daniel Dick from the Evangelical Cambridge Intercollegiate Christian Union meeting to discuss the rejoining of the two movements that had split nine years previously. Norman Grubb's account is now very famous. It goes like this. He writes, After an hour's talk, I ask Rollo point blank, does the SCM put the atoning blood of Jesus Christ central? He hesitated and then said, Well, we acknowledge it, but not necessarily central. Dan Dick and I then said, This settled the matter for us. We could never join something that did not maintain the atoning blood of Jesus Christ at its centre. And we parted company. History says in the earliest days, the SCM believed and proclaimed the atoning blood of Jesus. The next generation assumed it, but didn't make it central. And some would say the following generations have rejected and denied the apostolic gospel. We're a people who drift we forget. And God knows that. And so each generation is to look back and to remember 
what happened on that first Passover. You can imagine the conversations coming up, can't you? At verse 26, little Joshua asking his dad about the meal. Dad, why do we do this? Why do we do it this way? I'm, I'm a bit confused. Why do we roast it over a fire? Why do we leave the inner parts in? Why do we have bread without yeast? Why these unpleasant, bitter herbs that you make us eat? And at each point, there's a teaching opportunity for the next generation. Normal family life lived differently and obediently. Opportunities to talk about Jesus. But Dad says, well, speed is important. Speed was important because it was urgent. They had to leave quickly. God was powerful. He rescued his people speedily. It's symbolic. And so the fire means there's less preparation. The presence of inner parts, again, less gutting to go on. The lack of yeast. We haven't got time to wait for the bread to rise. Set up prep time much quicker. As would, I think, the uncooked bitter herbs as well. And it's not just in the cooking. Their posture as well. Verse 11 Cloak tucked into your belt, sandals on feet, staff in hand, eat it in haste. And the bitter herbs, there was a speed element there, there'd be less preparation time. But it's more than that as well, it's to remember the bitterness of slavery. Isn't it easy to look back and think, do you know, the grass was quite a bit greener, wasn't it? The good old days with my rose-tinted spectacles on. And indeed, as they head into the desert, just two or three chapters, they're longing to be back in Egypt again. And the bitter herbs, they remind them of reality of slavery. The reality of their hardships in Egypt. Chapter 1 of Exodus, verse 14. The Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labour, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. You don't want to go back. The grass is not greener. Remember what it was really like. And so this meal is to be a memorial meal for the people, to make it present, to make it personal for each generation. They need to remember they must not forget. And so do we. Clearly a way that we do that, as we did last week, was through the Lord's Supper. The meal that Jesus himself instituted at the Passover meal before he would die on the cross, remembering the true Lamb of God, to whom all these little lambs pointed to. And so we eat and we drink and we personally identify with Jesus dying, his body broken for us as we eat bread, his blood shed for us as we drink wine, making the events of the cross present, personal for each generation, to stop us forgetting, drifting. It does seem to me, though, there's a sense in which the New Testament says we need to be constant rememberers. It never struck you how strange it is that Paul, when he's writing to Christians, will spend vast amounts of time teaching them the gospel. Writing and writing and writing and writing the gospel again. Don't they know this? Don't they believe this already? Aren't these truths sorted? Why is he bothering going back to basics? 
Why bother, Paul? He knows that we forget. He knows that we need to be reminded. He knows that we're a people who fail to keep the main thing as the main thing. Life is hard, and we forget the gospel. And life is good, and we forget the gospel. How easily we seem to have this gospel amnesia. That's why we love to sing about it on a Sunday morning. As we proclaim the goodness of God in the gospel, we, we know that the messages of the world and the flesh and the devil will, will divert us and distract us and we veer off and we're shaped and we come back and we proclaim those truths again. Remember how good God is. It is why personal and corporate Bible reading is so important. Because we're remembering the gospel. It's why we as a church family together have a responsibility to one another to be reminding each other of the gospel. To have the kind of a culture where where it's just part of normal life, it's just part of discipleship. It's okay to be honest about our sin because we all have a substitute. We all need Jesus. Where whether life is good or life is bad, we're helping each other to to see our situations through the lenses of the gospel. In the midst of normal life, everyday stuff, helping us apply this truth of our substitute of Jesus for us. God says you need a substitute. You need to remember. Remember. 